God is faithful to his people, right? And, and we rejoice because we are the people of God. The people of God called out from the world and chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by the Spirit, and journeying together, together, to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. It is good to be together. I trust you have come with a real sense of anticipation in meeting with God and meeting with His people and in looking at His Word together. But before we open that Word, we're going to ask God to grab hold of our attention and our hearts and mold us into the likeness of His Son. So you join me in prayer. Indeed, Father, we are delighted to be here as your people. And we acknowledge that you are faithful to your people. And it is because of that that we know we can come to you this morning as needy people, needing your presence with us. We come from all over the world, from different language groups, ethnic groups, from different concerns, and yet we are united by your Spirit to gather around the throne of our Lord Jesus and to submit ourselves to you once again. We acknowledge that you are indeed our God, and there is none like you. We thank you that though we may not know each other's names in every case, we do not know a lot of each other's history, and yet we know that you have opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel, that you have forgiven us of our sins, you have, you have given us your spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, and you are indeed taking us to that great day in the future when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. Father, we come, some of us, actually quite burdened by issues in our lives, whether those be physical issues of health, emotional, spiritual issues. We have concerns with people, perhaps in our families here, and for some of us, families that are far away. And Lord, we want to entrust these concerns to you. We know that you are the God who can heal. You are also the God who can give grace so that we might persevere through the midst of difficulties. So that whether you heal or whether you sustain, Lord, we desire that you be glorified and that your reputation be amplified in our lives. We thank you for your word, how good it is to know that the God of the universe, the God of all the ages, has revealed himself in pages of Scripture. And so we recognize our Father that as we open your word, we are not simply looking at some good advice. We are not simply looking at something like a newspaper or good counseling, but we are looking to the very inspired word of God. And so we ask that as we open the scripture that you would cause our hearts to be submissive, encourage us where we need encouragement, bring conviction where we need conviction. And we will walk from this place knowing that we have met with God. So bless us, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today's news reads like a terrible thunderstorm. Thunder, lightning, 
tons of rain coming over us. We are overwhelmed by news. It seems to be mostly bad news. It is evil that we read about and hear about over and over again. It's almost enough to make you turn your phone off. I don't want to hear any more about the evil. And when we are in this kind of storm of evil today, it is very hard to know what to think about the future. People have so many different ideas about what the future holds. Maybe it'd be good for us to just have a cup of coffee and talk about it. Or perhaps we can just listen in on a conversation of three friends who are enjoying a cup of coffee and thinking about the news of the day and what it means about the future. Did you guys see yesterday's article from the Eurasian Times? It says here that Russia and China are developing these kind of amazing missiles. They can travel 1,500 kilometers and destroy a U.S. aircraft carrier. Oh, I didn't read the article, but I believe China has missiles with range of 4,000 kilometers. Yeah, I, I think that they're concerned that the United States has 12 aircraft carriers, all of them, have nuclear capability. Well, this article also says that North Korea and Iraq have been testing missiles that can carry nuclear weapons. I, I'm convinced the next war is going to destroy all of us. Someone's going to get nervous, push the button, and then Armageddon, and bam, we're all gone. You know what? I, 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 I don't think so. You know, our technology is getting so good we may be able to stop it before all those things starts. And you, you know, the, uh, uh, we are, we'll be able to deal with all those things and human beings will learn to get along with, with each other in the future. I doubt it. Well, this next article I, I see is talking about global warming. Ugh, that really frightens me. I mean, global warming, what kind of a world are we gonna live to our grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, ice caps are melting and oceans are rising and I've heard from many people in Ethiopia this is the worst rainy season they've had in years. It's out of control. We're either gonna freeze or burn up or drown or a meteor is gonna hit us and bang. Guys, guys, global warming is a problem but let's not forget we are doing so much to stop this problem. You know, the uh, emissions are being reduced, and also we are uh, learning how to live a better life, and we are less reliant on fossil fuels. You know, those problems by, by advanced, advances of technology, we can nail all of them. I don't know, you want some more coffee? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm also seeing all these articles coming from the US talking about how there just seems to be so much hatred, so much conflict and tension over gun control and abortion and gay rights and racial issues, and there's just violence everywhere. Again, it makes me just sad. I mean, Russia and Ukraine have been going at it for months, and it's affecting the whole world. There's war in Ethiopia, and not to mention Israel has been fighting the Arabs for Mom, as long as I can remember, wars will never cease. Yeah, it just seems like all over the world, every country has pockets of hatred. Yeah, but guys, people will learn to love each other, won't they? 
you know, education will be available all over the world, and they will learn to get along with, with each other. And you know, the problems we see, they will get solved. And really think some great world leader will rise up and you know, solve all these problems for us. They will, they will end all of the conflicts, and they will bring us peace. You know, we'll find a great leader, and he will bring us peace and harmony in the end. I don't see much hope in that. Yeah, it'd be nice, but I, I, I don't know. I don't hey, wait a second. You see on that TV over there? Is that a preacher? Wait. Yes, it seems like he's talking about the future. Bob, can you turn that up? Yeah, it seems like he's saying he thinks Jesus is going to come back and fix everything? Oh my goodness, he's crazy. <laughs> Guys. I really don't think God will just suddenly solve all these problems that is ours. It's our responsibility. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm turning this guy off. Ah, that, you just, nothing but false hope. Well, thank you, Bob. This has been wonderful. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Wow. Will God ever solve these problems? Uh, it, it, it's impossible. Indeed, it seems impossible that God would one day stop all evil. It's pretty hard to believe, actually, right? I mean, when our friends are all fearful that that our world is going to end by a nuclear holocaust, by a, a cataclysmic Armageddon experience. It's pretty hard to believe that, that God's going to put an end to all evil like that. Or when scientific experts tell us that uh, global warming is really a threat to our, our planet and that, that there's going to be a, a day coming when our world will no longer be able to handle the effects of global warming. And, and, and we're, we're headed in a direction that's going to be the end of the world. It's, it's hard to believe that God is going to take care of all evil. And when we live around a bunch of people who tell us that, indeed, we really are making such technological advances that, that mankind's ingenuity, that our ability to harness artificial intelligence is going to help us to solve any real problem in the world. When that is our culture, it's hard to believe that one day God will stop all evil. But that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible tells us to believe that one day God is going to halt evil like that. This morning, we want to take a look into the future to learn exactly what it is the Bible says about the condition of our planet and our, our race, our human race. And we want to learn what to anticipate on that day because when we understand the future, well, it gives us better understanding of how to live in the present. So what we're going to do is look at, first of all, the future for God's enemies, and then the future for God's people, and then step back and say, well, how does that affect our present? So what's going to happen in the days to come with God's enemies? What will happen in the days to come with God's people? 
And what, what does all of that mean for our lives today? We're not the first to grapple with this issue, for when John wrote the last book of the Bible, he was writing to a group of people in the first century who were struggling with a similar challenge. For they were living in a time when the forces of evil upon them were projecting to control them completely, and the future did not look good. They were persecuted for being followers of Jesus. They were, they were confused because Jesus had left them and ascended and exalted on high and really there was no sign of him, nothing, nothing of his presence in sight. And so John writes to encourage them and when he encourages them, he encourages us as well. So what will happen in the future to God's enemies? The first statement is this, that God's enemies will experience complete, irreversible destruction. God's enemies will experience complete, irreversible destruction. In other words, God will destroy his enemies totally and in a way that they cannot recover. We're in Revelation chapter 18, and we're going to look at the three great enemies that that God faces in the last days. Um, three, and, and these three enemies are going to be Babylon and the beast and the false prophet. And we'll kind of take them stepwise as they're introduced in our text this morning. So we're in Revelation chapter 18. I'm sure you've found it in your Bibles. And we're going to look at this first enemy, enemy number one, Babylon, and how God destroys Babylon both completely and irreversibly. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a millstone and and threw it in the sea, an object lesson, and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Stop there for just a second. As the author introduces this idea that the great city Babylon... The, one of the great enemies of God is going to be destroyed in the future. Now, let's ask a few questions about this Babylon. We want to find out, first of all, like, when is this going to happen? And then who is this Babylon? And then what are the results? Okay, so, so when is this happening? Um, we're, we're kind of at the very end of the Bible. You, you probably noticed, right? We're in chapter 18 out of 22 chapters, the last few chapters of the Bible. And what John is describing is a picture in the future. So just to get our kind of bearings, we know that Jesus was on the earth, and of course he lived, and then he died, and he rose again, and he was exalted on high. And then as he sent his spirit, we looked at that last week in Acts chapter 2, we, he ushered in the church age, which is, of course, our present age. We don't know how long this age will be, but the Bible tells us this age is going to come an end, to an end, I believe, next with the removal of the church, an event called the rapture. And that will begin a seven-year period that is called the tribulation, a time of great trouble on the earth, especially for Israel, but all of God's people who are present for the tribulation. And then, at the very end of the tribulation, that this is what happens. We're at the climax of this seven-year period where God is going to remove evil from the earth. And the first of his enemies is this enemy called Babylon. So who or what is 
Babylon. Well, you'd say it says it's a city. Well, it is or was a city, but I think John is referring to something much more. You all know, because you're good historians, right, that the city of Babylon was actually destroyed uh, in the 6th century. Back in 529 BC, the city of Babylon was conquered. If you wanted to find Babylon today, you'd probably go to Baghdad and hang a left, go about 100 kilometers south, and there's a big pile of rocks. I think that's what exists of Babylon today. So John must be referring to something perhaps other than a, a location. In fact, if you think about Babylon less of a location and more of a group of people or a system that has been opposed to God since the beginning. So come back to Genesis 11. Remember the story of the people building a tower to God, a tower to reach the heavens so they could bring God down? They were trying to be like God, opposing God, and that name of that tower ended up being Babel, a forerunner to Babylon. And of course, centuries later, there would be a Babylonian empire, a Babylonian empire with a city named Babylon as its capital. And why the reason it's significant is because that's the people who attacked God's people. It would be Babylon who invaded Jerusalem and in 586 BC tore down the walls, invaded the temple, removed the people into exile. It was a tragedy. And Israel's never fully recovered from that event. So Babel became Babylon, became this symbolic of people opposed to God, a system that would develop. By the time John wrote, there was some speculation that the Roman Empire filled this role of the Babylon against God's people because they were oppressing the people of God and, and cruel, ruthless dictators were making life very difficult for them. But as we look at Babylon throughout the book of Revelation, we see it's not a single city or location, but, but it's a whole system of people organized around the globe against God and his people. Let me, let me show you real quickly how that kind of develops. Um, look with me back at chapter 17, a couple of descriptions about Babylon, because it gives us a really good idea of how John is developing this. Babylon is going to be called a prostitute who seduces the nations to go against God. We're in Revelation 17. We'll come back to 18 in a minute, I promise. Revelation 17, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, these are bowls of wrath or judgment, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Babylon was a city that existed next to, to uh, many waters, a couple of great rivers. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So what you see is it's not just a city, it is actually a, um, a, a system of getting government kings and rulers around the world to be able to come and, it says, kind of drink of her wine, be seduced. In fact, later in the chapter, uh, Babylon is described as this woman wearing scarlet robes and, and therefore kind of uh, queenly, if I can say it that way, a, a royal picture of someone has, who has command of the governors and kings of the world. 
and is able to seduce them into making money and being immoral and lifestyles of godlessness. And they all follow along because it's the way that they can prosper. Finally, in verse 6, notice this description of Babylon. I saw that the woman, it's the city, was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. In other words, Babylon's not just some city. Babylon is a force that kills the people of God. And pictured here in a rather uh, grotesque picture of a prostitute who's drunk on the blood of God's people. It's a hideous picture of a world system intensified in the last days against God and against his people. So now we're back in chapter 18 to find out what happens to this Babylon, this system. Back to verse 21 in chapter 18. We have this picture of a mighty angel who picked up a boulder the size of a millstone. Now this would be a grinding stone for grinding grain. So it's not some little stone. It's a huge stone and violently throws it into the sea. Now think about that picture. Do do millstones ever float back up? No, it's gone, right? It's a picture of some violent act that is the destruction of Babylon, and it's not going to be reversible. You don't get millstones to come back up to the top of the sea. So this is a picture actually developed earlier in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel that describes this this violent overthrow of Babylon. In fact, it's so complete, so irreversible, that all of the normal life of Babylon will never occur again. Notice what it says in the following verses, verses 22 through 24. It says, The music of harpists and musicians and pipers and trumpeters will never be heard again. Uh, No worker of any trade will ever be found in her again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in her again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. You get the picture. Six times the author talks about kind of normal things of life, from weddings to making bread to hearing music. And he says six times, never will it occur again. Why? Because the destruction is so complete. It's irreversible. Babylon, the system of of people and commerce against God will be gone. Think of it. Our world is in the grasp of Systems of evil, systemic evil. It has all kinds of tentacles. Whether you want to talk about systemic racism or systemic oppression or, or the web of deceitful, unjust business practices or child labor or sex trafficking or the list could go on and on of a world that we live in that is gripped by these systems that are so complex that none of us can solve it, none of us can figure out how to overcome it. But one day, the text says, it'll be destroyed. Amazing. Never to recur again. Complete, 
irreversible destruction. That's enemy number one. But enemies number two and three are also spoken of here in John's work as he talks about the, the, the defeat of evil. So John is going to tell us that the beast and the false prophet also are going to be completely and irreversibly destroyed. Look with me at chapter 19, and we are going to skip down a few verses to verse 11, where we see that the leaders of God's enemies, the beast and the false prophet, are going to be destroyed. But first, we're going to look at the destroyer. We're going to see Jesus, in the first paragraph, coming as the conquering warrior. Now, let me warn you, this is a picture of Jesus you may not be familiar with. Because he doesn't come as a a teacher in the temple. He doesn't come as a sacrificial lamb to die on a cross. He doesn't come as a healer to raise the dead and heal the sick. No, when he comes this time, it's as a conquering warrior. Look at the description in verses 11 through 16. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 reads this way. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that, that no one knows but he himself. His robe is dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We'll stop there. The picture of Jesus as a conquering warrior. Did you notice the, the kind of the symbols of a warrior? A, a white horse, like, like a general who leads his army into battle, confident of victory. His eyes, like blazing fire, the, the eyes that can cut through a person to see, to judge justly, being able to discern what is right and true versus what is wrong and evil. A, a, a king crowned with many crowns, the, the ruler of all is the picture. And he comes, it says, with his robe dipped in blood. Likely a, a reference back to an Old Testament picture of a, of a warrior who so trampled his, his opponent, his enemy, that the blood of battle has stained his clothing. In fact, it's the picture that's picked up here as John says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You, you all know what a winepress is, right? Be like a, a big vat filled with grapes. And of course, people would, would get in and they would begin to stomp on the grapes. And the result would be that the stain of the grapes would, would be on their feet and on their legs. And, and they would, you would see the, the juice running down. And in the Old Testament... This is often a picture of the wrath of God when he comes and destroys doers of evil. It is their blood that stains 
the one bringing God's wrath. And here Jesus is pictured as this one delivering the very wrath of God. The conquering warrior will come. And exactly what will he do? He will defeat the beast and the false prophet and their followers. He will destroy them completely and irreversibly. Look how it's described in verses 17 through 21. We're still in chapter 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It is a picture of complete, permanent destruction of the enemies of God. Destruction that is so complete that it's described as a, a gibsha. But not the kind of gibsha you want to go to, right? A feast that would be, occur because the angels have invited the, the, the vultures of the air to come and dine on the flesh of the kings and soldiers that had followed the beast and the false prophet. Now, some of you are new to uh, uh, Ethiopia, perhaps. And if you're like me, you come from a country where you're, you've probably never seen a vulture. But I can tell you confidently, Ethiopia has lots of vultures. We used to watch them as, you know, standing in the field. And when the vultures came, you knew that something had died. Because they'll circle around and circle around and get tighter in their circle and closer and lower and lower. And then... They land and they start pecking away at the carcass of a hyena or a dead donkey. And this is the picture that's given here, that it'll be thousands perhaps of birds like this coming to eat the flesh of those who have fallen at the word of the Lord Jesus. Complete destruction comprehensive, great and small, slave and free, all will be slaughtered. But who is this beast and this false prophet? Let's take a moment and just make sure we understand who's being talked about here. Uh, in a nutshell, the beast is the personification of the greatest evil power upon the earth. If we go back and Back to chapter 13. We won't take time now. You can read about this this afternoon after lunch. Go back to Revelation 13 and you'll find that the, there, there's a beast that comes out of the sea. And he's actually described as the one who's going to be an imposter 
who looks like Jesus and will follow people, get people to follow him as a false messiah. In fact, he's elsewhere called in the scripture the Antichrist. Great powers of deception, great powers to bring the world together in unity of religion, in, in, in wonderful commerce, probably an ability to establish the world in a picture of success like they've never had before. It'll be a great day for the earth, except it's all motivated by a Satan-inspired person who is cool and clever and creative and working against God and against his people. That is the beast. But he doesn't work alone because he has a right-hand man. He has an assistant. That assistant is called the beast from the earth. Also in Revelation 13, he's described as someone who can work signs and wonders and miracles. And his role is to point everyone to the beast. And basically he says, look, I'll make sure that you worship the beast and the dragon who put up the beast because the false prophet is the enforcer of the mark of the beast, which seems to indicate that no one would be able to be involved in commercial activity. You can't buy or sell or be really involved in life unless you worship the beast and the dragon who put the beast into power. So this false prophet is a powerful individual who comes to enforce all that the the beast has stood for and is trying to do. And they work with Babylon. So if you get the whole picture, Babylon is this world system and there's a a man who comes to lead the world to participate in a world system assisted by a false prophet and they are a trinity of evil against God. Hmm. I would imagine in that day they will seem to be inconquerable. It will seem to be that no one could destroy them. It will seem to be that they are insurmountable. And then Jesus will come. And the text says that he will send the beast and the false prophet to the lake of fire and with a word he will destroy the followers of the beast. My friends, that's Armageddon. In fact, the Bible actually tells us in an earlier chapter that all this takes place in the valley of Megiddo. It is a place in Israel. I've been there. It's a big wide valley. And this is not fiction. It's not some movie for entertainment. Armageddon is not a meteorite that's going to hit the earth. Armageddon is not, you know, a bunch of aliens who come and invade us. Armageddon is not nuclear holocausts. It's not the fallout from global warming. This is Armageddon. When Jesus comes as conquering warrior and he completely and permanently destroys the forces of evil. In short, Armageddon is badder and bigger than you ever thought. You might be saying to me, well, you know, that's just so hard to believe. I mean, God is, God is merciful, right? And loving. And this doesn't sound like God. This doesn't sound like Jesus. Would he really do something like this? But please remember 
that this is Jesus bringing justice. When he is on the white horse, did you notice the description? He's faithful and true. He's the one who comes to deliver justice. And if we went back and looked a little more carefully at chapter 18, we would find that that this is justice being rendered because, because Babylon has been killing the prophets and the saints. It's justice that's rendered because, because the beast and the false prophet have led the people of the world astray. This is not vigilante justice. This is not like road rage kind of justice. Somebody got mad at you and ran you off the road. This is not the kind of justice that a, a temperamental dictator has because he's been offended and wants to show his force. This is perfect justice because the enemies of God will get exactly what they deserve. This is God in action in the future. So we've been considering what the future holds for the enemies of God. Complete, irreversible destruction. How about for God's people? What what does the future hold for God's people? Well, it will be very brief, but let me tell you, it's all about a celebration. The people of God are going to celebrate the arrival of God's rule and an intimate relationship with Christ. The people of God will celebrate the arrival of God's rule. He reigns and an intimate relationship with Christ. Let me show you. Chapter 19, we skipped a few verses, but we're going to go back to them now. Verses 1 through 6 initially. Notice the celebration in heaven that will spill over to earth because of the beginning of Christ's reign. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried out, Amen! Hallelujah! Do you see the scene? This great celebration that reverberates through heaven. Hallelujah! Which means praise to the Lord. Why? Because his justice has come to the earth. That's what I pray. The rule of God is beginning on earth. What we've waited for from the very beginning of time, the angels and the heavenly hosts have been waiting and watching for God for this moment when he brings his justice to the earth. And when it happens, it explodes with a celebration. It's a party in heaven that has never been seen before. But not just for the justice of God. It's also for the way the people of God will celebrate an intimate relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The author is saying, look, there's this celebration that the the reunion between Jesus and his people is going to, it's going to come. It's It's like a wedding celebration. 
In fact, he's, he's thinking ahead to the, the actual reign of Christ in the millennium and then eventually in the new heaven and new earth when Jesus and his people are able to experience his presence together. They will be, we will be together with him. Alleluia. The future holds great celebration for us. A celebration that begins in heaven and spills over to the earth. I can only imagine the thrill of hearing the heavens shake with Alleluia. I can only imagine seeing endless people and creatures of heaven that I cannot even imagine fall before him. Alleluia. My friends, our future has this ahead of us. The enemies of God will be completely and irreversibly destroyed, but the people of God will celebrate. Celebrate his justice, his rule on the earth. We will celebrate our reunion with Christ in the closest way possible. Well, that's all in the future, right? God's enemies are completely and permanently destroyed. We get to celebrate the, the justice of God and the beginning of God's reign and the closeness with Christ. That's all in the future. But how does that affect our lives today? May I suggest to you that what John is calling us to is to persevere today in our loyalty to that Jesus. To persevere in our loyalty to Him. So, though, though the world may try to seduce us away, though the opponents of our current Babylon might persecute us and discourage us, what, what John is calling the people of God to do is to demonstrate allegiance and loyalty to the Lord Jesus. Hmm. Our age certainly has its Babylon forces opposing God, pulling people away from God. And yet, we have this privilege of standing out in this world with loyalty to Him. What does that look like? Uh, Two short suggestions. I think, first of all, to show our loyalty to Christ, we live lives of nonconformity to the Babylon of our day. We, we live lives not going along with the pursuit of, of, of wealth and self-indulgence and not going along with the pursuit of, of self-fulfillment and, and status-seeking. For those are the pulls of an evil system that would seduce us away from God. So we don't keep checking our bank balances to see if we're making it in the world. We, we see how much we can give away. We don't, we don't live for a bigger castle. We live in allegiance to Him. We are not conforming to the pulls of this life. But there is another great way to show our loyalty to Him. And that is to persevere in the celebration of Christ's reign. 
and the celebration of his rule that will come and our joyful relationship with him, our intimate, close connection with him. In some ways, we, we have the privilege when we meet together as we walk through life of saying, you know, the news is bad, but I'm rejoicing. The future will be the defeat of evil by the Lord Jesus. It's not a glib, happy-go-lucky, smile-on-my-face-no-matter-what kind of joy. It's a deep conviction that says my confidence produces a celebration because of him. I don't know what news you're going to hear tomorrow. You might hear something about nuclear holocaust. You might hear something about global warming. You, you, you might hear about more wars and hate and conflict. And you will probably be around people who have great fear for the future. And you'll probably be around some people who, who think we can fix it all. Technology to the rescue. But we know something better. We know that our future has this day coming when our God through Christ will conquer all evil totally and irreversibly. And we, we will celebrate that justice has come and we get to be close, closer than ever to the Lord Jesus. May God increase our faith. And so our Father, I thank you for this great word from Scripture that, that instills in us confidence I pray that you would deepen our conviction that, that as the world storms about us with bad news, that we would be people who are steady in our faith. Draw us close, I pray. And Lord, if there be some even in this room today who, who are not loyal to you, some who would be swept away in such judgment, Lord, would you on this day Open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Draw them to yourself. And may this be a day when they begin their celebration of, of a good future with you. It is indeed in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit that we ask these things. Amen.